Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. You know the expression, big boys don't cry. Well, this week on Reset the Podcast, we have our mental health counsellor and leader of our Power of How Are You workshop, David Beanie. Together we debate why people are comfortable to tell their peers they've invested in a personal trainer for their physical well-being. Yet we are still so afraid to tell people that we have a therapist for our mental well-being and why big boys really do cry. We discuss the difficulty many people find in asking for help. David breaks down the stigma by sharing his expert knowledge on the tricky process of selecting a counsellor who works for you effectively, encouraging everyone to give counselling a chance. There is a trigger warning in this episode as we discuss suicide and we cover the language used when speaking about someone who has taken their own life and the terrible impact this has not only on them, but on many of those around them. At the heart of Let's Reset are the frameworks that we teach to embed a culture of openness, energy, well-being and performance into an organisation. David and I therefore discuss why and how we measure the impact of this through the seven needs test and the all-important Power of How Are You programme. Finally, David tells me why, as leaders, the moment we share our own vulnerability, we give others permission to share their vulnerability too something we all need to be reminded about and practice in our daily working lives. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please like and share and uh, tell your friends. It really makes a difference to us. Thanks very much. Hello, David. Hello, Suki. How are you? Well, I'm actually very well, thank you very much. But I think we should start this conversation as we do with most of our conversations, particularly when we're on our workshops. So, uh, David, on a scale of one to ten, how energized do you feel today? I'm a I'm a good eight today, Suki. I, I move house on Friday, so uh, it's been a long journey to get to this Friday, and I'm I'm I must admit I'm counting the days down. I'm very excited. So uh, I'm a, I'm a very good eight out of ten today. How, what about yourself? You know, I'm I am a very good eight. I've just been up and down to Birmingham for a meeting, which is kind of joyous, really, because we're just beginning to get out and about and travel more, which I love. And, you know, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I do always love talking to you. So it's really nice. To, and we we don't get, normally get the chance to talk to each other like this. No. Most of the time we're doing workshops together. So mm. this is very special. Um, David, what I thought we'd talk about today, so as you know, this is a, a month where we're really focusing on mental health in particular, and you are one of our brilliant mental health experts, you're also a mental health counsellor, so I've got a, I kind of thought we might do this conversation in two parts, the first part, I just want to pick your brains and talk to you a little bit about some of the findings of the last couple of weeks actually, since the beginning of this series, where I've spoken to two brilliant guests um, around mental health issues. And then we might talk a little bit more around what people can do in business and how they can have those quite difficult sometimes conversations. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, so the first one is, you know, a week or so ago, we had at the beginning of September, the day where we focus on thinking about suicide. And we know that um, it is, particularly for men, I think it's under 40, um, it is the bigger, biggest killer of men in the UK, which is it's still an extraordinary stat for me. Um, from a mental health point of view and as a counsellor, why is this? What, what is happening? Um, it, it's a horrific statistic and uh, matched as well by nearly eight out of 10 suicides, a, a male as well. 
Um, there's been some really good progress made in recent years around mental health, as we know, but still too many men particularly struggle to open up and talk about uh, their true mental health. Certainly when I was a young boy, Suki, I was told many times, you know, um, big boys don't cry. It's what girls do. And I don't think parents say it quite as much these days, but we're still conditioned in many subconscious ways. The fact that we're we're big boys and we're men and we're not allowed to cry. And we've still got to get better at encouraging people to display their really true, honest emotions. And um, it's still um, an area we need to work on is still the language we use. Now, you and I are, are massive advocates of asking people how they are on a scale of one to 10. And the reason is, if you say to someone, um, how's your mental health? We don't like that word mental. It's, it's too invasive. It's the best way to close somebody down. So just getting in early today, the importance of language on this subject, uh, if we're going to encourage people to open up and be really honest about how they're feeling. You and I always smile when we say about one to 10, but it's a really important way to check in with somebody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and your point about language is a really good one, because I mean, one of the things, particularly around mental health, and I would say diversity and inclusion as well, is that things have changed so much and we often get quite scared about what we're meant to be saying. Are we saying the right thing? And actually I was at a dinner party at the weekend and one of the guys there, he said, Oh, do you know, we're not allowed to say um, suicide anymore. So we, interesting. And he said, no, 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 you're not allowed to say commit suicide. And I said, yeah, well, okay. So we do, what we don't say anymore is the word commit suicide, but suicide as a term still exists. And it's, actually very important we do talk about that um and and that is language that's changed you know for a long time we talked about somebody committing suicide why is it david that we don't say those particular words anymore and what is the language around suicide that we should be using now i've had some real learnings in in recent years about suicide and i don't deny suki only a few years ago i still thought that suicide was a selfish act I would get very annoyed uh, at someone who took their own life, uh, thinking, how can they possibly do that to their children, to their family, to their best friends? The more I studied mental health, the more I understand it's, um, it's not a selfish act. Generally, when people take their own life, they're doing it because they think they're doing their loved ones a favor. And it's probably the saddest, loneliest death of all. Um, the reason we're trying to get rid of that word commit is because we commit a murder. We commit a crime um, and suicide is it's not a crime. It's it's a very, very sad illness where someone's mind has convinced them that the best thing they can do for everybody, including themselves, is to remove themselves from from this life. So language is really important from a personal point of view. We can still talk about suicide and it arguably, Suki, a bit like our podcast today. We need to talk about it even more because still too many people are taking their own life. But I think if we can remove the, that word commit, uh, you commit suicide would be a, a step forward and help us all to realize it's not, it's not a crime. Um, it's, uh, it's not a selfish act. It's, uh, it's a very, very, very sad time in someone's life when they, they become that ill, they think they're doing everyone a favor. And, and I guess that's what's really hard to hear, isn't it? I mean, there are so many different situations where it tragically ends in suicide. I think one of the things that we hear a lot of, particularly around men, actually, is that they are in a lot of financial difficulties. They're in financial, great financial debt, things that might have spiralled out of control, often relationships too, but, but often it is that financial focus. And therefore, I can see how perhaps the people left behind, us from a distance look at it and go, it feels selfish. How can we, of course we feel sorry because it's, I'm in a terrible place to get into, but actually they've, how could they have got themselves into that place? And they've gone so far that they think that's the only place to get out of. And actually, you know, if, if you are the wife or the, perhaps the husband or somebody very close to somebody who is in that much maybe financial trouble, isn't that just what you're going to feel? Isn't you, aren't you going to feel, of course, devastated, but equally really furious? And you're left in 
tragic, tragic situations where, you know, I've heard of people who have lost their houses immediately. They're left with lots of debt and the loss of the person who's been very close to them. I think uh, we, we, we know, Suki, the longer we hold on to things, the heavier they get. And again, going back to men in particular, we're not good at admitting when we're in trouble, uh, whether it's financial or, or health or, or anything affecting our, our emotions. So it all comes back to trying to encourage people that it really is OK not to be OK. And we actually in, in inspire people when we share vulnerability. A very sad statistic is that four out of 10 suicides come as a complete shock to family and friends. In other words, 40 percent of people who take their own life it comes as a complete shock to the people that love them most. Now, I had a, um, a man say to me recently that he was really struggling. And I know he has a very, very good relationship with, with his wife. And I said to him, do you mind me asking, have you shared any of this with your wife? And straight away, he said, of course not. He said, of course not. I don't want to worry her. I don't want to burden her with this. I then said back to him, if I told you that your wife was having suicidal thoughts and had been for a while, um, but she didn't want to tell you, you'd be angry, wouldn't you? And he said, yes, of course I would. I mean, of course I'd want to know. I said, well, don't you think your wife would want to know what you're going through at the moment? And he hadn't really thought about it in that way. Um, I, I've been working with someone for a while now and I'll, I'll anonymize this the best I can. He's, um, he, he's a young man who I was counseling um, probably at 18 months ago and about six or seven months ago he told me one day that he was in a much better place now and he wanted to stop the, the counseling um to bring you up to speed uh, a few weeks ago he got in contact with me and he was close to suicide and he was probably the closest to suicide of any of my clients since i qualified as a counselor and i was seriously seriously um worried about him and the good news is, is that we've, we've had we've spent a lot of time together in recent weeks and he's now just starting to come out the other side. Um, and one of his learnings, Suki, was that he stopped having therapy. Um, if you if you've got physical health issues, you um, you know, we don't hesitate about getting a personal trainer and going to the gym regularly. The, the mind is the same. Um, we need to, you know, be as willing to have a, a personal trainer for our mind as we would for our physical health. And my advice to everyone is, is that, you know, if, 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 you, if you're struggling with, with your mental health in any way whatsoever, try to explore the world of counselling. Too many people try it once and they say it's not for them. Um, but if you find the right therapist, the right counsellor, it can really change your life. So I encourage everybody, not just men, Take more seriously your mental health. And if you're going through a period where you're more anxious or sad than normal, think about finding a therapist uh, yeah. because too many people don't. Yeah, it, you know, we, I, I've talked a lot about that in my podcast and I had a guest quite recently where they have actively had quite a lot of mental health challenges for all sorts of reasons, but has not felt that they wanted to go and see a counsellor. And actually their reason was... They didn't want to be seen, uh, in their words, as mad. Didn't want to be kind of, in a way, outed as somebody who that actually had to be reported in some way because of the sort of thoughts that they've got and the things that they're feeling. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that kind of confidentiality piece? Because I think that, to me, is one of the things that stops people going to counsellors because they hear that you know not everything they say is confidential. I think there's actually been a, a really big step forward in the last few years. And I'll tell you why, Suki. Until just over two years ago, I did all of my, my counselling in person. Um, I was doing it at the time for the, for the mental health charity Mind. And I never thought I would do my counselling virtual. Mm -hmm. um, I've now completely switched. My clients really like um, counselling virtually because it avoids going to a waiting room and walking into a waiting room and looking around and worried you're going to bump into somebody you know. It's a lot more confidential now than it ever has been. Uh, in saying that, of course, you know, if you do want to see uh, someone like me face to face, of course, you can still do that. 
but in some ways it, it has become more confidential. And, and the biggest benefit I think people get generally from therapy, it's so rarely in life do you not feel judged. But when you see someone in a safe space um, and you have a, a, a very empathic, um, congruent, safe relationship with someone and you're not feeling judged, it really does help you to open up and share things perhaps that you wouldn't normally share. So again, I, I'm encouraging people to, to try and take, you know, think more about uh, talking therapy. Think yeah. more about trying to find the right counsellor for you because it, I'll say it again, it can really transform your life in a really positive way if you find the right therapist. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you say, David, and I, I've shared this already, but I saw a counsellor for a number of weeks earlier on this year. I'd been quite ill. Um, and I found it very interesting because in the same way, I actually, I don't have a business coach at the moment, but I have had a business coach quite a lot over the last few years with the transition of selling and starting businesses. Um, what I always find I love about a business coach is it does those things, makes me reflect, makes me think differently, gives me frameworks that I can think about, but also makes me have difficult conversations. And I found this year the benefit of the lady that I saw was, you know, I spend all my time, you know, people with people like you, other psychologists, amazing, amazing people. I spent all my day talking to people about the benefits of thinking of their well-being. So I think, you know, one, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty, I, I kind of understand a lot. I've been through quite a lot myself. But what I recognized was I was very, very good at hiding the stuff I didn't really want to talk about. And I kind of would skirt over it. And every time I'd give a kind of list, well, there are four things I want to deal with. And she would go, well, I think I'm going to talk about that one because that's the one you haven't really spoken about, Suki. And every time she did it, and I, and actually it really helped me, not just in those particular challenges, but in, in my business, in changing my relationship with my kids, and lots of self-reflection that's helped me, I think, be more effective at work because of it. But to your point, when I, when I was looking for someone, again, you know, and I'm quite used to this, I've made lots of recommendations over the years for other people. What I looked to do is I went to two or three people I trusted and they recommended the people they thought would be right for me. And that's how I did it. Mm -hmm. I, I spoke to three and I chose one. What ways is it good for others to be able to choose the right kind of counsellor? And, and by the way, I also know you don't always get it right first time. Mm -hmm. Um, as we know, sometimes when you go to see a doctor, you want a female doctor um, or you want a male doctor or you want an older doctor. Um, one of the best ways to find the right counsellor these days online is what's called the counsellor's directory. And you can see little mugshots of all the counsellors and it tells you a little bit about them and perhaps the areas where they're expertise in. So by all means, narrow down on that directory what counsellor you think might be right for you and then ideally give them a call get in contact with them and and just sort of ask them a bit more about what they think they could do for you and um and if when you first meet that therapist whether virtual or in person they're not the right person for you then then go to another one they say therapy is the relationship and it's about finding the right therapist for you it's also about exploring what is the right modality for you i'm going to be a bit biased here because i'm a person-centered counselor um in my relationships with my clients, the client is the expert. Nobody knows Suki Thompson like Suki Thompson. Um, if I was working with you, the answers lay within you. My job is to help you find those answers and to find a way forward by being non-judgmental, by being empathic, by being congruent. And even though it's all about you opening up, um, you still only have to share what you want to share. Um, I'm a very, very open person these days, Suki, but I still don't tell everyone everything. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's things I'm going to take to my grave with me. Um, so you you don't have to share anything you don't want to share. And uh, person-centered relationships are generally, for example, very warm relationships, very trusting relationships. And clients should almost look forward to those sessions. And it's almost like having a catch up with someone that you, you enjoy spending some time with. But um, I, yeah, again, I encourage people to um, to look more into counselling and to, to try and talk to friends who perhaps got good counselling experience and ask them how they found the right, the right therapist for them as well. Thanks. Uh, yeah. And then I think the other side of it, you know, you just talked a bit earlier on about 
you have had somebody who's been with you perhaps for 18 months. To some of us, that might feel like an awful long time. And and again, one of the other reasons they don't go into counselling is going, well, I don't want to see somebody for 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there's no kind of right amount of time, is there? But But can you get a feel for what might be the right amount of time? Or is that impossible to say? Again, with person-centered counseling, uh, you choose how many sessions you want and you decide when you want to finish those sessions. So some clients I, I only see four, five, six times. Um, sometimes that's weekly, sometimes it's fortnightly, sometimes it's monthly, and that's chosen by my client. Sometimes um, I, I've been working with some people now for a couple of years because they just like once a month to check in with me and, and, and to have a download, if you like, and just to share things about their life that they perhaps wouldn't want to share with with certain other people in their lives. So um, you you can go for one session and, and just share something with, with a counsellor just to sort of um, hear out loud your own thoughts. Um, or you can have many sessions. Uh, the, the choice is the, is the client's. Yeah. 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 And actually, I was talking to one of our psychologists about this this morning, knowing I was going to be talking to you. And um, and one of the things they said, which I thought was really good, was after you've done your first, you know, however long it is, one of the things that they often recommend is if you know a period of, of change is coming up, if there's going to be a difficult period of time for you, actually book something in then maybe do it like you say, a couple of sessions then, because it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. That's great. You can flex on it and maybe you can push yourself to see is it really not as other end of things you're not really thinking about or genuinely it is really challenging and therefore you've got that in there and it's going to help you through that really tricky period yeah absolutely um, I, I work with uh, one of the political parties and uh, one of the people in one of the parties has said it's conference season coming up can I book you in two days before conference because I get myself in a bit of a state about conference so yeah, so you can pick certain dates or times when you know you might be a bit fragile, a bit brittle on, on certain times of the year. Some people um, book a session on the anniversary of, uh, uh, you know, someone who, who who sadly passed away because they just want a moment on that day to share with me what they're going through. So, um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. yeah, I guess people need strategies to to look after their mental health. And at times we are more brittle than other times. Yeah, yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's funny, isn't it? You know, we wouldn't think twice about, you know, I wouldn't think twice about using a coach to help me through a difficult period. I might then have gone, look, I've got a big board meeting then or I've got something, I've got a M&A happening or, or something big going through. I need a couple more sessions with you. Wouldn't I wouldn't bat an eyelid about that. I wouldn't feel that there was anything wrong with me by doing that. In fact, I think it would be rather smart and clever of me. But still, for some reason, it is much more difficult to say, yeah, I have got a counsellor and they're a really integral part of me being able to be the best human that I can be, but also be better at my job, be better at home, be better as as an individual. Suki, on my phone, I've got 17 friends on here who I know have used a personal trainer. Um, Do you know how I know that? Because they tell you because they don't shut up about it. They're very, <laughs> proud no, they're very proud of it. And by the way, if you're listening to this and, you, and you've currently got a personal trainer, I'm not knocking it. It's brilliant that you're investing in your, in, your, in your health. The point I'm about to make, I wonder how many of my friends are seeing a personal trainer for this thing in here called the mind. I wouldn't know, would I? Because the vast majority wouldn't talk about it. Um, I'm not saying we should wear a badge saying I'm currently in therapy. Of course not. It can be quite a private thing. All I'm talking about is the contrast that when we want to get help for our physical health, we talk about it. And when we want to get help for our mental health, we don't tend to talk about it. One more statistic for you. And bearing in mind, I'm not a fan of statistics. I'm quoting quite a few. <laughs> no, times. I know you are. Very unusual um, for you, David. If we woke up this morning and uh, we had symptoms of depression for the very first time in our life, do you know when we're likely to seek professional help? Uh, I do. I do, but you tell me only because you've told me before, yeah. but tell me. It's six to eight years time. In you know, On average, we wait six to eight years to get uh, help professionally for our mental health. Yet if we woke up this morning with symptoms of, of poor physical health, we think about contacting a doctor within two or three days. That's the contrast. Um, that's the contrast. It's massive. 
there's a long way to go yeah there is there is a long way to go and actually you know it, I, I still am hugely grateful to Paul Pomeroy that I was my guest for my first ever podcast on Reset the podcast and he was talking to me about uh, the counsellor that he uses and and actually it's still one of the most listened to podcasts that we've had and whenever I still go into McDonald's and and I or I meet other people they talk to me about that because to have the chief exec of McDonald's talk about seeing a counsellor made so many more people feel that it was okay and that they could either talk about what they were doing or that they would be brave enough to go and see someone so you know I think it's your point speaking out about it however difficult it is really can make a difference to lots of people can't it the moment you you share your own vulnerability you're giving other people permission to share their vulnerabilities too which is why more senior leaders have still got to get braver and be prepared to talk about challenges they may have with their mental health i understand why it's really difficult you and i suki we grew up in a time in business whereby to talk about battles with depression or anxiety would have been regarded as weakness and other people may have taken advantage of that but that's where times have changed because there's been a shift towards a more authentic style of leadership. And these days when you can be more authentic and share vulnerability, you're more likely to take people with you. And as all great leaders know, one of the key strengths of a leader is to take your people with you. So, you know, you and I work with some leaders now who are very, very open about uh, their, 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 their battles with, with mental health, their vulnerabilities. And are they now seen as liabilities? Not at all. They're seen as even more inspirational leaders, but there is still more work to be done in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely there is. And, you know, and I think that kind of comes on to the next bit I want to talk to you about, because, you know, for us, the seven needs of well-being and performance is the absolute core of everything we do. It's our measurement tool. Um, but, but moving on from there, when people understand a little bit about how they can actually measure the impact of their well-being on their performance the power of how are you as a workshop is our is our most popular workshop that we do um and that's about you know creating a framework but and we're not going to go into all of that now but but just to give people a bit of an understanding about um why is it and, and how is it important to say how are you at work you and I have seen this so evidence-based now, Suki, in, in, with our work in, in, in recent years. But the work that we do, yes, it's about mental health and well-being, but it's about creating greater engagement and, and greater energy uh, through the, the populations of, of, of the, the clients that we work for. And it is so evidence-based that when the best way to make someone feel valued and cared for in the workplace is before you start talking about work and sales and clients and customers and KPIs, is to ask somebody how they are. But it has to come from the heart. You've got to mean it and you've got to be prepared to listen. So you and I know that um, if we were going to give one piece of advice to businesses about how to create a culture where people feel really valued and cared for, it's to start meetings by not talking about work, but asking people how they are which is why we call those sessions the power of how are you? Because by simply starting meetings, by saying, look, forget about work just for the first 10 minutes today. How are we all? Let's go around the table and let's everyone give a score how you are one to 10 is the best way to drive energy through that organization. And uh, we, we, we've said for some time, you know, we don't mind putting the words the power of in front of how are you? Because it is really powerful. It's really, really powerful. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, it is feels so simple. I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest excuses, reasons now why people say, yeah, they know that's really important, but actually it's really hard to make time. Um, actually, there's two. One is the hybrid working which is, you know, we often, we, we don't have that water cooler moment. We don't have that coffee moment. We've sort of got pretty fed up of the whole Zoom thing, but hybrid working means that you've got days of working at home. So, you know, one, what do we do about that? But then secondly, we just don't have time. You know, we've seen the number of meetings people now have in a week has almost doubled in the last two years. So if you're then spending time asking people how they are, well, we're never going to get through everything. 
we we hear that all the time and i don't know the reason for this but people have admitted that when they're working on teams or zoom they're even less likely to start the meeting talking about anything other than work because often we're on back-to-back -back teams meetings starting one at one o'clock one at two o'clock one at three o'clock and the battle is to find that 30 seconds between the meetings to grab a glass of water to go to the toilet and therefore we jump straight into the next meeting and we think everyone's so busy the last thing they want is me to ask people how they are but it, i think it's a discipline suki i think it's an education piece um you know if you're if the idea of your meeting is to get the very best out of your people and to to inspire them and to encourage them to take on big workloads the best thing you can do is to invest five ten minutes in not talking about work but asking them how they are um i, I think it's an education piece which is it's again why the work we do at let's reset is very very important because there there has been a change of thinking in recent years you wouldn't traditionally have started meetings um uh a certain senior level by spending perhaps the first 15, 20, 25% of the meeting by not talking about work. But yeah. times have changed. Yeah, I, I, completely. And we have seen this. We've seen the best, actually, most high performing cultures are those places where people do spend time doing that actively. You know, one of the chief execs that we work with um, has just put in a series of breakfast meetings with six or seven people breakfast ask any question have a conversation he'll then get a feel for again what people are thinking and feeling but not just about work not just about how do we make this process better but actually how do people feel when they come to work what could be what could make things better and you know how can they perform better but focusing on things other than you know it might be to do with the ways of working but it might be to do with something else completely one of our clients at Let's Reset, Tui, as you know, my daughter works for them. Yeah. And a story that I, I've told so many times now is when I caught my daughter one day taking a photograph of the inside of her fridge. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, dad, we've um, we've all been asked to take a photograph of the inside of our fridge. We send it into work anonymously. And then we've all got to guess whose fridge is who. And I just loved it. And uh, my daughter works at head office at TUI, where they've got a great reputation for how people feel about working for TUI. And it's because they do fun things like that that do take time, but it ends up making people think, do you know what? This is a brilliant place to work. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and do you know what? There are, they are a great example, because not only do they do lovely things like that, you know, they are a client of ours, so they run our programme, but equally, they've got a big two-day for a lot of their staff and, and you know and we're going to be there and they're spending a whole afternoon on why well-being is a strategic priority how they can move that forward and you know that's there's some fantastic businesses where they are making well-being now as more of a strategic priority um but there's still a lot that don't they talk a lot about it but they just don't actually do anything um i know I know you find this as frustrating as I do, but I, I'm interested in your kind of perspective on it. I, I just think, again, it goes back that there's more work for us to do at Let's Reset in helping businesses understand that the tone has to come from the very top in organisations. And what does that look like? That looks like, um, again, um, senior leaders sharing vulnerability, senior leaders um, being seen to invest more of their own time in role modeling behavior um, around well-being. Um, we've got to stop praising the guy who or girl who works 80, 90 hours a week. But actually, when you see someone who comes into work on time, leaves on time, takes all their holidays and is doing a great job for your business, that we recognize behavior like that as well. Um, there is there is there, there's more work to be done, Suki, because um, as you said, we're still seeing too many senior leaders who will talk about this game, but if you ask their employees, um, are they taking their well-being seriously? They will use that horrible phrase, they're ticking a box. Um, you know, I, I, one, one of uh, the uh, businesses that, that I'm aware of, that their CEO, at the start of the pandemic, he was saying, look, I don't care about sales at the moment, I care about you and your well-being. And he saw an increase in sales in his business because... His messaging was so authentic. Of course he cares about sales.
but he also very much cares about the, the well-being of his people. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, you know, one of the things, it's a story that you tell often in our workshops, but I think it, I, I'd love you just tell it again, because it shows, you know, showing your own vulnerability, you know, we talk about it. It's really hard. It is really hard. I mean, there are certain things that I find really easy to talk about. I mean, like you, massively open. But there are moments when, and I truly feel vulnerable, really, really hard. And I tend to, to not actually share enough um, because all the things we've talked about, it, for you, when you had your moment of, of, of talking about really significant vulnerability, that must have been really hard for you. Just talk me through a little bit of that. Yeah, I'll be honest. Um, a question I'm asked is that why at 52 years old did I finally talk about my private battles with panic attacks for the first time in my life? Now, as you know, I love a story and I wish this story was a better story. Um, I I think the, the HR director where I was working at the time, they knew I was a qualified mental health counsellor. So they asked me to do some talks about mental health. And I was um, leaving the business three months later. Um, and I'm often asked if I hadn't been leaving the business, but currently applying for a bigger job, would I have opened up and talked about my mental health? And the honest answer, Suki, is probably not. Um, I was put into a corner. I thought, I know what I'll talk about. I'll talk about myself for the first time in my life. But was it because I was leaving that business and I was coming towards the latter end of my career and I felt safe to do so? But I'll be honest with you, Siggy, when I first first shared my mental health, my initial reaction was, what have I done? Um, people aren't going to look at me the same again. Um, if I thought my career was over, it definitely is now. Um, however, the feedback I got, the the amount of people who, who said to me, David, thank you so much. Today, you've told my own story that I've never been brave enough to tell. When I realized how much it resonated with so many people and, and many at quite a senior level too, I've never regretted it since. And in the last five or six years, um, I've, I've been involved with many people who've opened up and talked about their mental health for the very first time in their lives. And do you know what? Not one of them, and I mean this, not one of them has regretted it. And, and the senior people particularly have, have, have gone on to become even more inspirational than they were before. So uh, yeah, anyone listening to this who, who's still worried about opening up, but you know you can do it. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I think I think it's great for you. The way that the business responds is so important. You know, so we've seen and we've heard lovely stories of people who have had to go and say, "Look, this is happening to me," and actually the response of the business has really, really helped them. And then, of course, there is their friends. Um, but, you know, I think, again, personally, when I was really not well earlier on this year and I had to go to one of the businesses that I work with and I and I said to HR, feeling actually really foolish that I hadn't talked to them at all about having been not well and having had some treatment for six months. So I did feel a bit stupid about that because I thought I'd be absolutely fine. And then funnily enough, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, the head of HR's response, which was so kind and so thoughtful, and then, you know, of course, all of you, but my friends and my other businesses I was working with, the moment of saying it made me start get better. And up until that point, every day I'd be like, I can't understand why I can't get better. I can't understand why I can't get better. And I put more and more pressure on myself till I was almost at a bursting point. I mean, I could hardly speak. And then literally, like the next day, and then within 10 days, I was, I mean, absolutely not fine again but I could work and all the things I was worried about just went away. And just, you know, I'm like, why does that happen? Just want to say something in the moment as well. We've, we talked a lot today about men and how men find it difficult to open up um, about their true mental health. Senior successful women in business, I think it's almost tougher because for many, many years as a, as a, a senior successful woman in, in the business world, um, you've had to battle against men and you have been naturally concerned about showing vulnerability that will be seized upon. So let, let's give some balance to it today. Uh, for This isn't just about men. Uh, for any successful women listening to this podcast, I know how difficult it must be the first time you want to share vulnerability. 
really, really difficult. And I admire you massively, Suki, for 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 being able to share vulnerability in 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 what is a very tough world out there. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I think you're right. I do. I think I I see it in in my girlfriends. You know, in some ways, it's okay to talk about your children. It's okay to talk about anyone else in your family mm. and that you need help. Um, but I think you're right. You know, for so long we've gone. Oh, I'm just going to manage everything. Oh, my child's ill, but I'll miraculously manage them or I'll manage something with a house. Um, it's very difficult, very difficult to, to, to admit that stuff even impacts on you um, because we just get it done. Um, and then I do think if it's things to do with us personally, so, so hard. Um, you know, and I think if you come back to what we talked about at the very beginning about suicide, I had Pippa Glucklick on this podcast last year and her so tragically her husband took his own life mm. she talks about the story she was running a massive media company she heard the news she carried on and went to work she went to germany and ran a pitch had her children looked after and then did the pitch and then broke down unbelievable it is unbelievable isn't it unbelievable it's quite extraordinary and i hear quite a lot of women well you know, if you listen to Emma two, a couple of weeks ago, same story, same story. She hears of her brother and carries on because that's what we're kind of programmed to do. Yeah. And just just another thing to throw in to give some balance again today. I quoted earlier on that nearly eight out of 10 suicides are male. Part of the reason for that is the methods men use to take their own life often are fatal. Uh, they often hang themselves. They often shoot themselves, sadly. Um, where many of the methods that, that females use to take their own life don't always necessarily result in death. Now, I don't know how much it's been looked into, but I still think there'd be a male dominance in suicide. But that that is part of the reasons why we see such a, a bias towards men as well. Um, just a tough subject to talk about, but you know what I'm saying. It is tough. It is really tough. tough I'm, feeling, I'm feeling quite emotionally drained by this, David. Um just finally, look, there's a there was a TV program um, that the the guys in it talked about not just saying how are you, but asking twice. Um, share with us for those people that haven't seen that uh, a little bit about that and why not only should we be asking how are you once, but actually asking twice. The question I'm asked most often uh, as a mental health counsellor is when someone says to me, I've got somebody in my life I'm worried about. But however many times I ask them how they are, they say they're fine, but I know they're not fine. What can I do? Now, sadly, we can't force anyone to tell you how they are. We can't. Let's keep this real. But it is, is fact, it was a brilliant documentary by Roman Kent on, on the BBC, where he went over to Belfast and spent some time with some young men where they've got particular issues around mental health and suicide. And I love advice that's simple. And the, the, the simple advice, if you want to know how someone is, ask them twice, because if someone says to you, how are you? You quickly say, yeah, I'm fine. But if they then look you in the eye, smile and say, and now how are you really? You will generally give a different response to that second question because you realize they really want to know and they're really taking time to find out. So it's a very simple piece of advice. But um, if you really want to know how someone is, ask them twice. I yeah. love that, Suki. Yeah, I do too. And as you say, a brilliant uh, documentary by Roman, but really worth um, watching uh, if you haven't done already. Uh, one of the things that we are asked, I think, again, most often in business is, well, there's two parts to it. They either say, I don't want to ask because what do I do with the answer? And I don't know how to fix someone. Or they say, somebody has come to me with their problems and I'm trying to help them, but um, I'm not necessarily qualified to do that. So I would prefer actually not to hear the answer or it takes up so much of my time. I don't want to ask them too much because I haven't got that amount of time to really, really help them. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, the good news is, is that um, as, as managers or leaders, your, your job is not to fix people. Please take this in the right spirit. It took me years to qualify as a counsellor. We can't put you on one of our workshops for half a day uh, and expect you to, to fix people's mental health. The other good news is, is, is that you don't need to be qualified either. Um, 
we, we, we coach out a Let's Reset, a very simple framework for a conversation that looks a little bit like this. Um, if someone does come up to you to talk to you about their mental health, say thank you. Thank you for talking to me. By saying thank you, you're almost saying to them, it's a privilege you've chosen to speak to me. And it's a way of saying, um, you're, they're worried about being judged. They're worried you're never gonna look at them the same again. And it's just a way to put them at ease as well. It's then about listening. It's then about making people feel um, that you've really given them some quality time to listen. Uh, it's putting your mobile phone away, shutting your laptop down, etc. But then it's about signposting, just like you would with physical health. If someone came to you with a physical health issue, you wouldn't try and fix them. You would encourage them to go and see their doctor or to ring 111 or to go to an urgent care centre. Well, mental health is, is the same. You can say to someone, look, thanks for talking to me. I really care about you, but I'm not qualified to deal with this. So why don't we together get you professional help? And your job is to persuade someone to contact a counsellor, to use your EAP, to contact a doctor. And then at the end of the conversation, you may not be there to fix them, but you are there to stay on the journey with them. So say to them again, look, thanks for talking to me again today. I do care. So let's put something in the diary. And then just make sure that you you check in with them on a regular basis. So it's a really good point you make, Suki. People are worried about asking someone in case they get out of their depth and don't know what to do. You don't need to get out of your depth. At that point, you say to someone, look, I really care, but I'm not qualified to deal with this. Let's get you professional help and encourage them and do the very best you can to get them to talk to a counsellor or a doctor. And do you know what? You're so right. It's interesting, isn't it? In in business, I wouldn't kind of go, do you know, what? I think I know a bit more than that lawyer. So I won't use a lawyer today or don't worry, I'm an absolute specialist on databases. I'll take that on. So you come to me with a question. I'm sure I can work it out for you. We just don't do it in business. But then the moment we go into, as you say, mental health, somehow we think we can miraculously brilliant. And, and I think the, you know, this is another of our pet subjects and we'll touch on it before we finish. But Mental health first aiders, I think 10 years ago or so when perhaps they started and, and became kind of really popular in businesses, my view is it was brilliant. It really helped companies go, do you know what? There's a challenge here. We need to do something. We can train some people in maybe a day and a half or two days to do something. But my view is of the businesses, particularly we work with, which are much more forward thinking businesses, I think, is that there is probably a place in some companies, but mostly now that is not right. You know, in a in a day and a half or two days, you can actually do more harm than good. You know, if I did a couple of days of lawyer training, or actually it's, it's kind of the world we live in, isn't it? Mm. You know, I do a little bit of training on governance because I have to, does not mean I can run audit because I haven't done that. And I do think that just because we've trained people in being a mental health first aider, we literally should not be either pushing all our challenges to those people because it's too much for them to cope with or actually even more damaging. They are the people offering advice because that is that is very, very dangerous. And I and I worry why it's still such a strong part of a lot of businesses tick boxes and it hasn't been it hasn't got enough focus on it. You know, I agree with you on this subject because uh, 10 years ago when businesses first started um, finding out about mental health first aiders and thinking it was the way forward, what also happened at that time, many managers started abdicating responsibility for the well-being of their own people. And they thought, well, I don't have to worry about that now because we've got these mental health first aiders. Um, you can work for a brilliant organisation, Suki, with a fantastic culture. But if your manager doesn't get it, then you don't get that experience. So uh, probably a good way to start to bring an end to this podcast today. This is why businesses need to use companies like Reset to train their managers on, on well-being and what kindness looks like in the workplace, because your manager is your absolute key to the experience you get in the workplace. So let's start training up our managers on what a good mental health conversation looks like and the power of how are you. Um, uh, you know, yes, maybe in time, then get some yourself some mental health first aiders or well-being champions. But the key to well-being at the workplace is the relationship you have with your immediate line manager. Yeah, yeah. If you could go back to your person, you David, before you're fifty-two, before yeah. you've said 
look, you know, actually, I really, really struggle. Um, what advice would you give yourself? I just wish I'd been that that phrase, it's OK not to be OK. So many people now associate that with mental health. But do you know what? I wish I didn't realise years ago, it really is OK not to be OK. I'm now more my my real self than I've ever been. And I'm I'm more effective these days in, in, in the work that I do because I'm me. I spent years hiding who I really was. And therefore, I never truly fulfilled my true potential in the first 30 odd years of, of my career. And only now am I fulfilling my true potential because I, I bring my true self to work every day. Um, and so I encourage everybody, it really is okay to, to be you. Uh, if you do share vulnerability, you'll inspire people around you and give other people permission to share their vulnerabilities too. So um, I broke my silence at 52 years old. Please, you know, don't suffer in silence like I did. Um, yeah. And just just be you. And yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, yeah, don't wait till you're 52. David, <laughs> absolute joy. Look, I, I am glad at least you did it at 52 because I wouldn't work with you if you hadn't done that today. And, um, you know, I, as I said at the beginning, I love spending time with you and I love seeing the impact that you have on, on everyone that we talk to, but particularly the stories that you tell. So thank you, David. Um, thank you, Suki. Have a lovely evening. Enjoy moving to your new house and I will catch up with you very soon. Will do. Thanks, Suki. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson. With me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network. Music